Now, last week, uh, on the 24th of May, I think it was last week, seems like a long time ago, 24th of May, 18-year-old Salvador Rolando Ramos killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Aveld, or Uveld, I don't know how you spell it, but anyway, it's in Texas, right? That was bad enough. That was terrible, wasn't it? It was bad enough. And then we heard that earlier that day, Ramos had shot his own grandmother in the forehead. And she's in critical condition right now. It turns out that two months ago, Ramos moved out of his mother's house to live with his grandmother after arguing with his mother over Wi-Fi access in the house. Kids once Wi-Fi and sometimes he go, you know, he started swearing at his mom. He was very horrible to his mom. In fact, he videoed the whole thing. And it was terrible. The mom, for her part, you know, is addicted to drugs. She's a drug user. And Ramos's father is long gone. He's, he's, he's no better. He has issues of his own. In fact, the more we read about Ramos's background, the more it becomes clear that the root of his problem, actually, is that Ramos was not raised in a very happy family. You see, our society won't admit it, but family matters, doesn't it? Family matters. Studies have shown that a happy family increases our own happiness and even lengthens our life. It's all in God's providence, but actually people raising happy families live longer. Studies have shown that. And that's truly surprising, isn't it? It's good to be in a happy family. And there is a family, though, that is even more important than our physical human family. Because many of us are raised in a very difficult family. But it's wonderful to know that there's a family that's even better, more wonderful than any family we can have on earth. It is the spiritual family we have in Christ. The church, in fact, all families are broken. All human families are. The church is the only true family. Because it is the family of God himself. The church of the living God. And everyone who is a true follower, no one on this place can say, I don't belong to a family. Because if you are truly born again, you belong to the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who's been born again as God, as our Father. And we have spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. And our spiritual family we have in Christ is made visible when we gather like this with our brothers and sisters here. The church is the local family of God in this church is the local family of God in Bexley Inn. As we meet like this, we are the family of God made visible. The question is this, what does a happy spiritual family look like? There'll be a sermon in the future about what a happy human family looks like when we get to chapter 3, towards the end of chapter 3. But what I want to ask today is, what does a happy spiritual family look like? We need to know the answer because just as our human family affects our own happiness, being in a happy church, we might say, affects our own spiritual happiness. And as I said, our, our spiritual happiness is a matter of life and death. 
How the church is can affect us eternally, can't it? It can. Yeah. If you are hearing wrong things here, it can send you to hell. Literally. Well, to help us answer the question of what makes for a happy family, a happy spiritual family, please turn with me there to Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. Because Paul here is sharing with the Colossians his deepest desires for them as a church. And if you look at this passage, the key word that summarizes verse 1 to 5 uh, is there in the middle of verse 2, in the beginning of verse 2, and the word I'm thinking of is encouraged. Paul has many desires for them, and, and, and he wants them to be fundamentally be encouraged. Verse 1 to 2 says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. What is his goal? That their hearts may be encouraged. What does that mean? Well, the original word for encouraged means to be comforted, Right? Or to be strengthened. Or to face life with courage and confidence. In other words, Paul wants them to walk with their heads high. Right? He doesn't want them to be confused about life. He doesn't want them to live a fearful life. In short, he wants these believers at Colossae and Laodicea to be a true happy church. He wants happy churches at Laodicea, happy churches at Colossae, happy churches at Hierapolis. And if he was speaking to us this morning, he would want us as a fellowship to be a happy or encouraged church. A happy spiritual family makes for happy spiritual children. Now, there are two truths here Paul shares about what makes for a happy a true happy church. I just want to walk you through them briefly this morning. The first thing in your outline here is that a happy church is one in love. A happy church is united, lovingly united in love. This is what Paul believes. He believes that the number one thing the Colossians need in order to be a happy church is that they need to be lovingly united. Look at this one to two again. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. We stop there. Paul wants them to be knit together in love. What is love? Well, love, the word for love here is agape. Now, this is the free, unconditional, unconditional and without strings attached Love of God. And God has poured out this love into the heart of every true follower of Christ. Now we know the Colossians already have agape. We know that. How do we know? Because we looked at it in chapter 1 verse 4. Do you remember what, if you, if you glance over there at chapter 1, you see in verse 4, it's one of the three things that mark out that they are true believers. Paul thanks God for their love, for their faith, and for their hope in Christ. Love is one of the proofs that we are true Christians. So every true Christian by default has the love of God poured in them. But what Paul is longing for there in verse 2 here in chapter 2 is longing that this bond of love would grow, right? He wants all believers to be increasingly wrapped 
in the love of God. Or rather, to put it differently, he wants them to increasingly wrap each other in the love of God. That their hearts, verse 2, may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Don't miss that word, knit. He wants them to be intertwined together in love. To the degree that they can't even be pulled apart. He wants them to be attached at the spiritual hip, as it were, with love. The word knit can also be translated as welded together. Think of two metals being brought together and welded together. That's what Paul has in mind. It's a strong bond. He's saying in a happy church that the, the, the practical love of each believer is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, the glue that binds and bonds one heart to another by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, all true Christians are already united in love. And we're already united in Christ to a degree. Because Christ lives in us, we're united in his love, right? But what Paul is getting at is that the, the unity we have already in Christ should be made practically visible in our lives. We should become outside who we already are inside. Which raises the question, isn't it? How does growing in love grow us into a happy church then? How, how does being knit together in love gives, makes us encouraged in our hearts? Right? Well, when we grow in love, we begin to see all the things mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we read. Right? When we are one in love, we are more patient with each other. We give each other time to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Christ. When we are one in love, we are kinder to each other. We want what is best for the person sat next to us, not simply what is good for us. When we are in love, when we are one in love, we want what is best for to bring out the happiness in the other person. And, and in fact, just that longing of wanting to make others happy, it, it warms our own hearts, isn't it, as recipients of that love. We all love, we all enjoy being truly valued, don't we? Right? When we were one in love, we stopped boasting and envying each other. We are now in servant mode. In a church where we are one in love, everybody wants to be a doormat for each other. <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> it is. They do. They're in servant mode. And that brings happiness, doesn't it? Because who doesn't want to be served by someone? A church where everyone is serving another person is truly a joyful church. And it brings joyful tears to our eyes. A church that is one in love is a happy church because the growing love of Christ in that church bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It is a happy church because the love in that church makes the people stay hopeful about each other and are willing to endure all things for one another. When we are one in love, we do not rejoice when the people are living in sin and error. We don't. We weep for their sin and long for them to know Christ. When we are one in love, the church is happy because our shared love makes us jealously guard one another from being pulled apart 
from, by sin. We were studying this, weren't we? The, the jealousness of God in our, in our online Bible study on Wednesday. And we talked about God's jealousy. How it's a good thing because it's not jealous of us, it's jealous for us. Well, in a place where there is love, we are jealousy, jealousy for others. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a love that guards, that seeks to guard them from error and sin. In short, when we are in one in love, we become a happier church because Christ is working through us to give and receive love from each other. A church that is one in love is a happy church because everyone gets to be physically embraced by the loving arms of Christ through his church. Now, I'm sure there is no one here who doesn't want this. When I thought about this, I thought, I want that. I want to be in a happy church. All of us want to be in a church that is truly happy. We want to be in a church where we are one in love. And so the question is, how do we grow to become like that? Well, Paul's answer is that we need to work for it and we need to pray. For I want you to know, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And we define the struggle when we looked at this last week, that the struggle is both working hard and it is praying, isn't it? And throughout, you've already seen Paul pray from chapter 1, verse 9 to verse 12. He's praying. Paul prays all the time for the church because that is how he sees these things coming about. If we want God to make us a true happy church that is one in love, we need to start praying to God for it. But we need to combine our praying with specific action. In other words, pray to do something specific. It's not good just praying in general, because that's not a serious prayer. Pray to God to help you do specific things. Do you get that? It's so important. General prayers are weak prayers. They're not serious prayers. Lord, make me to love. Well, what's that? Press for something tangible, specific. It's the same in the home. There's no point of having general prayers. Be specific. Because in being specific, you're surrendering to God to work in and through you in that specific way. Ask God to help you do something. Don't just pray, Lord, help me to love. Pray for direct, practical actions to grow in love. And let me suggest just a few things. I had a long list of about 10, 11 things. Let me just suggest... Five things you can pray specifically to grow your love in the church so that all of us can be knitted in love. First of all, ask God to help you to pray for at least one family consistently each month. Just one family consistently each month. Just ask God to help you to pray for a specific family in the church. Just one. Just focus on one month, just one family. There is no better way, and the next month you move on somebody else. There is no better way to love someone than to pray for them. Prayer is the greatest act of love you can do. Because in praying, we move the Almighty God to act in the lives of God's people. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. God has willingly, sovereignly determined to work through our prayers. There's no better way for you to love someone than to pray for them. So pray to God to, for one family. Amen. Just focus on one particular family. 
That man pray that throughout that month for that family. Next month, move to another family, right? Ask God to reveal their needs to them. Ask God to help you to show love to them, right? Ask God to help you to live sacrificially towards them. That's how you pray, just one family. Start there. The second thing you, might, you may want to think about doing is ask God to help you speak to one different person every Sunday for a good length of time. To help move beyond just talking to your favorite person. But I want to preach about that. That's a sin of partiality. Why do you want to just talk to one person, same person at a time? You're sinning. That's partiality. Look, if you're going to be loving, united with others in the church, you need to really know them, right? So ask God to help grow you in being intentional about it. One different person every Sunday. Okay? You can still chat to the wife and, and the husband, right? <laughs> the third thing you might think about is ask God to help you encourage someone in the church by word or message at least once a month. Ask God to help you appreciate people. Now, we all appreciate one another in the church. I know we do. But we are not good at saying it. Ask God to help you affirm the gifts and graces of others in a Christ-like way. The discipline of affirmation is missing in many of our lives. Ask God to help you with this. You can, to be able to say after the end of each month, this month I encouraged this particular person. I sent them a message or I picked up the phone call. I sent them an email. If you don't know people's emails, come to me and we'll do the old GDPR thing. And you have the right email, right? <laughs> okay? The fourth thing is ask God to help you carry one burden for someone each month. Just someone each month. Ask God to lead you to someone here in the church who's really struggling in some way. You say, well, I don't know anyone struggling. Are you serious? Come on. We have people here who are unwell. We have people here who have been in hospital recently. We have people you are feeling lonely. We have people you are struggling with finances. Well, we are all struggling with finances. Because of living Christ. But the government has given us 400 pounds, so we are all right. Um, we have people here struggling with parenting. It's so hard. It's so hard being a parent. The list of struggles is endless. I mean, yeah, I appreciate as a pastor, I... One of the blessings of being a pastor is that you, you are humbled by the struggles of the people you're ministering to. That's a blessing. It humbles you. You repent. You stop mourning you. That's why I enjoy meeting people. <laughs> Just hearing their struggles grows me in holiness. But if you made an effort to know people, if you do the other things I've been talking about, getting to know people and really make an effort, you will know people are struggling. If you don't know people struggling in the church, that's a big problem means you're selfish, self-centered. Your life is about you. You've got to be blunt about these things, isn't it? So ask God to help you spend time with someone different at least once a month to listen to their story, to pray with them, to carry their burden. The fifth thing, and I'll, I'll stop here, 
Ask God to help you share me with someone. Listen, I know what you're thinking, right? <laughs> you're thinking, Eunice is away. Chola wants a meal, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. Listen, as it turned out, right? As, it, as I thought about this, as it, I'm not asking for a meal. As it turned out, I had a wonderful meal. Yes, last Sunday, thank you very much. Your sister looked after me very well. And uh, if I should maybe some food this t- on Sunday as well. So I am not in need, right? And uh, my Malice is always checking up on me. So I'm all right. She says, keep quiet, you see? She's even ordering me from, the, from, from where she sat. The point is this, right? In, in all seriousness, one of the easiest things you can do is to ask the Lord to help you at least invite one family or person in your home to share a meal. Nothing complicated or fancy. Just a simple meal together. The focus is always on the fellowship, isn't it? Not on the food. If you focus on the food, you won't do it again. But if you focus on the fellowship, you do it. Remember also that your home is not yours. We've had a sermon about that. The mark of stewardship. Everything we have belongs to God. Now, there are a lot of more things I can say, and we can go on to help you grow in loving unity. If you want, you can have a chat with me afterwards about the other things. But I'll end here. The point is that we need God to help us to grow in being knit together in love. And there's so many things we can do. And actually, what we need to be doing is to pray specifically for those things, for us to grow in those things. Because a happy church is one in love. That's the first truth. The second and final truth I just want to share with you uh, this morning is this. A happy church is confident in Christ. It's one in love, and it is confident in Christ. If you have been following the tennis, you know that our local tennis superstar, Emma Raducanu, right, from Oppington and all that, suffered another crushing defeat, which is sad, isn't it? What has gone wrong with Emma uh, since winning the U.S. Open? Well, she has lost confidence. The experts are saying that. She has lost confidence in herself, and she has lost confidence in her coaches. We know that because she keeps firing a coach every month. I think she's on her fifth one at the moment, right? just keeps getting rid of them. Confidence is important. We can't function in any area of life without confidence. It's just true in tennis, it's true in sports, true in politics. And the same is true in our life in Christ. We cannot grow into a happy church unless we grow in our shared confidence of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Uh, look at verse 1 to verse 5 there. Paul explains this, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, there's a lot Paul is saying here, but to understand what Paul is saying, we need to do a bit of a dance, right? We need to start in the middle of, we need to start in the middle with verse 4, right? And then we need to go to verse 5, 
And then we need to return to verse 2 and 3. That's how we understand what Paul is saying here. So in verse 4 and 5, Paul is explaining why he has written the words he's written in verse 1 to 3. What does Paul say in verse 4 and 5? I say this, what he's just said, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Right? In verse 4, Paul is saying, I am not just trying to look good. I want you to grow into a happy church. I'm not just mouthing off. This is my desire for you. It is for you to grow into a happy church. I am saying all of this, says Paul, because I do not want the false teachers who have crept in among you to lead you astray from the Lord Jesus. These people are using clever arguments to undermine the good news of Jesus. They are saying you need more than Christ. And Paul says, don't listen to them. I'm saying this in order that no one may delude you with their plausible arguments. Right? That's what he's saying in verse 4. In verse 5, Paul is saying, you are on the right track. I am thrilled to see that your faith is real. Yes, I am not there, but in a way, I am. Because we have one spirit in Christ. Right? And I'm happy to hear that you are resisting these false ideas. Though I am present in, I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, he says in verse 5. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Okay? So that's verse 4, verse 5, right? And now, going back to verse 2 and 3, right? Paul is saying, Paul wants these new followers of Christ to stop doubting. And to grow in confidence so that they can be a happy church. To go on growing. Verse 2 to 3 says that their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? Paul is saying, I am longing for you to really know that you have it all in Christ. In the person and work of Christ. I want you to grow in your confidence in him. Why should we be confident in Christ? Well, verse 2 to 3 answers that. Because Christ is the plan of God for our salvation. Being knit together, he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is God's mystery made known. What does that mean? Well, Paul is not saying that Christ is hidden from us in any way. He's not saying we need secret insight to know Christ. No. A mystery for Paul, we looked at this last week when we looked at um, chapter 1, uh, verse 27 to, and 28. A mystery for Paul is simply a truth that has not been well understood until the time God took the initiative to reveal it and make it clear to us. Right? Christ is a mystery in the sense that it was only when God came to us in the person of Christ that, that jigsaw puzzle I was talking about last week, Christ was the final piece that made the picture and plan of God for salvation clear. Christ is the only person who gives the full, authentic, accurate knowledge of God and his ways. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Now, we may not feel the weight of this, but for the church at Colossae, this was a big deal. Because the Gnostic teachers, false teachers, who we're going to discuss some more as we go forward, they had come among them, you see, and they claimed to have some hidden or secret knowledge of how we can live with God. In fact, they believed in angels as mediators. They said, to access God, we need these angelic mediators to have life with God. And Paul he said, no, 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 don't listen to the false teachers. Christ is a plan of God made known, revealed. He is God himself dressed in our flesh to reveal God to us. Christ is all we need to have life with God. In Christ, God has, as it were, put on our human flesh to reconcile us to himself by his death on the cross. That is what he said in chapter 1 already. In Christ, we have peace with God and he now lives in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You do not need to doubt, says Paul. Be confident that Christ has really saved you from sin. How can we be sure that Christ is our only true Savior? Well, Paul has already talked about that. I mean, all of chapter 1 is about that. But here, he just wants to underline it. He says, you can be sure that Christ is the true Savior because Christ is the answer to every question in life. He is the wisdom and knowledge of God to us. Verse 3. In him, in whom are hidden or are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When Paul says all wisdom and knowledge is in Christ, he's not saying that a person can't know anything if they are not a Christian. That's not what he means. The world has many brilliant scholars who do not believe in Christ. Many of the people running the world hate Christ with every fiber of their being. What Paul is saying is simply this. Paul is making two points. First of all, Christ is God who holds all true knowledge and wisdom. He is the origin, creator, and sustainer of all true knowledge and wisdom. Every knowledge and wisdom is borrowed from Christ. He's the one who has given all the scientists all the knowledge they use. That's the first point Paul wants us to understand. The second point is this. Paul is making is that all true knowledge of the ultimate meaning of all of existence is found only in Christ. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know how we can relate to God, you need to look to the person and work of Christ. Christ is God himself revealing himself to us. All the big questions of life are found only their answer in Christ. All the ethics questions you have are found their answers in Christ. You cannot make sense of morality without Christ. You can't even know yourself without Christ. Who are we? How do we differentiate between good and evil? How does God expect us to live? How do we have life with him? Where is this word going? All those answers found their end in Christ and Christ alone. If you want to know yourself, don't look to the school. Look to Christ. If you want to know where the world is going, don't look to Davos and close swap. Look to Christ. All the answers in life, they are found in Christ. To know Christ is to know life. You know, I was evangelizing yesterday, wasn't I, in, in um, Riash, and I was chatting with people and um, hauling. And this happens all the time. I speak to people about the gospel, and they usually say to me, 
I am not religious, but I am spiritual, they said. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. What they mean is that they have their life with God and do not need Jesus. They believe in spirituality, but they don't really have believe Jesus is the one. And often we hear a lot of people talking about wanting the divine, don't they? They desire to encounter the transcendent and the supernatural dimension of reality. Yoga, Eastern meditation, all of these things are focused on this. The many Buddhist occultic practices and other things we're seeing in our society are focused on that. Spiritual, but not religious. These people don't want Christ. They refuse to believe in Christ. They are searching for a Christless spirituality of their own imaginations. These people are spending time in vanity. They are wasting all their lives trying to acquire the wisdom and knowledge that has been made foolish by God. The Bible is saying clearly to us, there is no ultimate meaning in life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. All reality and truth is found in Christ alone. And you as a person today, you have to make up your mind about Jesus. You know, I was speaking to a young man yesterday and he was telling me, I'm open about God. You know, I have option one, option two, option three, and I'm looking into this, I haven't made up my mind. I said to the young man, I said, look, you know what? The problem is you're a coward. You're a coward, and the reason why you're a coward is because you don't have the courage to actually make a decision. But because you're a coward in things of God, the decision has already been made for you. You have already made the decision. He says, what do you mean? I said, you've already rejected Christ. He goes, but I haven't. I'm still looking at option A, B, and C. I said, no, you have. Listen, if you go to a bank and they offer you th- three options for a mortgage to buy a house, option A, option B, option C, and you decide not to take any of the options because you want to think about it, haven't you made a decision? What the bank thinks you have, you've made a decision currently not to buy the house. So you as an individual, it's not, you, you, you're not agnostic about Christ. You have rejected Christ. And the courage I'm encouraging you to think about is that the courage of your rejection. And I want to speak to young people, especially today. You are not keeping your options open. You are rejecting the fountain of wisdom and knowledge, the Lord Jesus Christ. To not turn to Christ is to shame Christ, is to reject Christ. It's not something neutral. It's active. What you lack is the courage to admit your decision. The Bible is telling us here, isn't it? It's making it very clear, isn't it? If you want to know what is true, you you need to know Christ. If you want to be truly satisfied, you must repent and surrender your life to Christ. And the good news is if you're already trusting in Christ, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1 verse 27. And this is the point Paul is making to the Colossians. He's saying, look, all followers of Christ have already access to true knowledge. They're already complete in Christ. They don't need anything else. And he's saying to them, look, be confident, beloved. Do not reject what you've already received. Stay confident in Christ. 
We need to grow in our assurance that we have everything we need in Christ. Yes, the world is dangling at you options and options and options, but reject all of that. Why? Because in in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and you have been filled with Christ. You say later on in this chapter. And the point for us as a church is the same as for individuals. The key to living a happy life as individuals and as a church is to grow in confidence in Christ. And beloved, let's live like it. Let us live as people who have the truth. These are not days of affin found. These are dark days. I was speaking to a mother yesterday on the stage. She doesn't believe in Christ. And she, she admitted, it's hard being a mother of four. These are difficult days. I said, where do you get your hope? Nowhere. But if you're in Christ, you have the hope. For do not forsake what you've already received. Be confident in Christ. We forget this as a church, don't we? As individuals, we, when life becomes difficult, we are prone to drink from the polluted wisdom, the polluted rivers of this world's wisdom. But you need to remember that in Christ alone is found the true fountain of wisdom. And we need to hear this as a church, isn't it? As a church, it's also very easy for us to find ourselves in the way of the world as a church, together. Listen, what the church needs is not more modern way of doing things. I'm a bit of a modernizer myself, but what the church needs is not modern way of doing things. It's not better use of technology that would make the world relate better to us. It's not even better apologetic argument. Look, the church does not need its own scientists, more of its own scientists and biologists and economists, if you can believe them. It doesn't need more of that to spread the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying these people cannot add value. They can and should be encouraged to use their gifts wherever God has placed them. But that is not the need of the church. That's not the need of the hour in this time we are living in. The need of the hour is confidence in Christ himself. We need to grow in our assurance of who Christ is and what he has done for us. This is the greatest need you have as an individual. And it's the greatest need we have as a church. And of course the natural question is how do we grow in confidence in Christ? So just briefly say, I've taken up too much of your time already. I simply said this, according to Paul... The word of God is key. Because it's there in verse 4, isn't it? How does Paul expect them to grow? The answer is in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He says, I'm writing the word of God to you. And this is the fail-safe mechanism for, for growing in confidence in Christ. If you are going to grow in confidence in Christ, you need to grow in hearing and obeying the Bible. You know, I talk to a lot of people. They come up to me, oh, I'm struggling with assurance. Okay, okay. They're struggling with assurance, yeah. I'm, I'm struggling with whether I'm still a Christian and I've got all these problems. Okay, fine. Are you reading your Bible? Not regularly, right? Are you praying? No. Are you making an effort to be here morning and evening? No. Well, that's your answer, isn't it? This is the living bread. The word of God. This is your answer to your assurance problem. 
Are you doubting you're a Christian? Get in the Word. Sit under the Word. We need to be students of the Bible. We need to prioritize studying it every day as individuals. And if we're in families, around the family table, it must shape our home life. And we need to sit under the preaching of the Word of God in church. We must eat the spiritual food. Do not expect God to grow you in assurance if you forsake the very means He has appointed. This is the way. Walk in it, says the Word of God. And so we must retire sitting under the Word of God. You know all your problems in your life with God that you have comes down to a simple point. You don't know the Word of God enough and you're not obeying the bit that you know. And so, resolve. Me and my house, we shall serve the Lord and concretize that. I'm sure that's an American word. By... Make that concrete, right? By saying, me and my house, we shall be a family of the world. We shall study it every day, if we can, or at least two or three times a week, if we can. And we're going to resolve to sit under the preaching of the word of God in the church, in the morning, and in the evening. We shall set aside the Lord's day, as the Lord's day, to be the word to be fed by him. The church will always struggle to grow in happiness unless true followers of Christ grow in confidence by hearing and obeying the word of God. And I'll just say, the most important thing that you can do for this church is to you yourself sit under the very word of God and to pray for this church to become a word-centered church. Because we've seen here, haven't we, that a happy church is one in love And the happy church is confident in Christ. Well, may the Lord help us to grow in these things.